you have to be hard-boiled to get through life, whether you're a shop girl, a debutante, or a movie star. Jean Harlow Chapter 11 Six weeks after the funeral, it was mid-February. Sometimes that's chilly in Los Angeles. More often it's spring weather. Irises were blooming against the white picket fence at the front of the property. In the middle of January, while I was still adrift, Mr. Booker had shooed the gardeners away from the roses in a torrent of sibilant Castilian Spanish, and he himself had pruned the thorny branches into perfect urn-like shapes. For the task, he wore leather gloves, a canvas apron, and some kind of arm protection, an oversleeve, that appeared to me distinctly Victorian. Looking out of the kitchen window, I could see the roses were beginning to leaf out, tender, glossy little bits of green. I heard the front door open and close as Jake and Mr. Booker returned from school. They walked there together every morning and returned together every afternoon, even in inclement weather. Mr. Booker believed with indefatigable British certitude in rain boots, umbrellas, and proper regular exercise. They walked back into the kitchen, and with them was Cooper Daniels. Madam, said Mr. Booker, Mr. Daniels has arrived. If you will excuse us, we will attend to our homework. Jake slipped his backpack off his shoulder. They left letting the kitchen door swing right behind them. Huh, said Cooper. Direct from central casting. I love him, I said inexplicably. I started to tear up. I'm sorry, I snuffled, jamming a wad of tissue under my eyes. I'm so sorry. I keep doing this. Cooper wasn't good with displays of emotion that were unscripted. He pulled a chair from the kitchen table and sat down next to me. That was stupid of me, he said. I came here to see if you're ready to go back to work, and God, how stupid. He looked out the sunny window toward the garden. He changed tack. That's nice. What's nice? I started to calm down. The flowers and everything. There isn't much blooming right now. I looked out the window. Back in Massachusetts, there would be snow in the ground. Yeah, said Cooper, shifting awkwardly. I have this thing uh, that I was hoping to pitch to. I, I thought you could help me. He cleared his throat. <clears> throat> and I, fuck, oh, bad timing. I got married over New Year's in Las Vegas. He had gone pink over the cheeks and across the bridge of his nose, just like Jake did when he was battling a sense of shame. I remembered patience at the funeral. My spine went gelid. I could actually feel the extreme cold traveling down my vertebra, just like the Labrador current. Cooper stuttered. I, 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 oh, God, it just seemed like the right thing to do. Right thing? Is she pregnant? I was surprised my lips could move. I felt so frosty. I pressed my fingertips into my palms to warm them. Yes. Is it yours? He said, what am I going to do? Ask for a blood test? I interrupted Cooper. Well, then it was the right thing to do. I guess I should go, he said, scraping his chair back over the floor. No. Cooper warily tucked his knees back under the table. No, I repeated. Don't go. I, I want to hear about this project. Let's get back to work. I just want to go back to work. I had messed up, messed up my emotional life. The corollary seemed to be spooling out in front of me. Cooper had messed up his, 
But work I could handle. Work, film work I could excel at. Hell, I could probably even afford to finance a low-budget movie all by myself. Not that the Yankee in me would countenance any excess. No. If I had learned anything at all about the studio system, it was all about making the other guy pay. Really, work is perfect. We can make this movie. We will make this movie. Suddenly, I was dictating terms. As I said, a seismic shift. I was dictating terms to Cooper. To tell you the truth, I just felt horrible and wanted to keep talking, to keep him in the kitchen. There is a kind of courtship that goes on between producer and director, a kind of wooing. The producer holds the means of movie making, the money, and the director, if they're any good, provides the vision. There's a honeymoon period and often an inevitable falling out. It was a form of sexual sublimation, but I thought it would do. Sex, power, creativity, industry. Yeah, a muddle that would have to be sorted out in time. And it was the only muddle I had going. While we went through the motions, sort of setting a price for film ideas, packaging, I brewed a pot of coffee and got distracted by the brand on the foil-wrapped sack. Starbucks. That was a name I'd been familiar with long before the emergence of a national brand. It littered my father's desk. Herman Melville immortalized it in Jake's favorite book. Starbuck was the name of a Nantucket family, whalers and captains and ship owners. Dad, who still did business with the coffins, gardeners, and Starbucks, refused to drink the coffee. He scoffed at the lack of authenticity and preferred Folgers in a can, possibly the same thing he'd been drinking since before I'd been born. Tiny little nothings. They were scurrying across my brain. Why can't I focus? When did Cooper start sleeping with Patience? Patience Daniels? Was her name Daniels? He knocked up his drug dealer? I slammed the refrigerator door shut, sending the contents clicking and clattering, startling both myself and Cooper. This time, he really did insist on leaving. Later that evening, I was once again camped out at the kitchen table. I had a yellow legal pad in front of me. I had one of Jake's school pencils in hand, and I was writing out a list, a list of everybody I knew in Hollywood. It must have been about 10 o'clock in the evening. Mr. Booker walked into the kitchen and put the kettle on. He had become accustomed to me being at home and primarily staking out my place at the kitchen table. He recognized it as my spot. I didn't retreat to my bedroom. I didn't have a favorite chair in the living room to curl up and read. I preferred a straight-back chair and a hard surface and notes, lots of notes. He noticed that since the death of Dave, I had become a little gaunt, a little too angular. I had slightly dark circles under my eyes and a constant furrow to my brow, as I did as I scratched along at my legal pad. Mr. Booker saw that I was clutching the pencil and bearing down too hard on the paper. I was getting a blister on my finger, and I kept writing. Mr. Booker made a strong pot of tea. He heated two mugs with the boiling water from the kettle, emptied them quickly in the sink, and poured out a heavily caffeinated china black. He added a teaspoon of sugar to each mug and a generous splash of half and half. He set one of the mugs down to my right. May I speak openly to you, Mrs. Taylor? He inquired. No need to even ask, Mr. Booker. He had my full attention. 
I pushed away my writing pad and returned his gaze. He looked like he could see right through my skin to the vein in my temples. Mr. Booker told me later, decades later, he felt a grab at his heart as I sat there, thinking I was really much too thin. He thought after the salary raise, which he had received with some disquiet, that he had been bumped up a considerable notch. By his reckoning, he had been employed not only as Jake's caretaker, but also as a father figure for me. Indeed, he was convinced I needed looking after. In his estimation, the most important thing he could do in that capacity was place me on the right path. There is something resplendent about 30, Mrs. Taylor, youth behind you, fruition and realization before you. Yes, a very resplendent age. I laughed. He couldn't be talking about me. I was 30. Mr. Booker observed me steadily. There was a bleary aspect about me that he recognized, overtaxed but doggedly pursuing a goal through a haze of exhaustion. I don't know if you are aware, ma'am, but on our morning walks to school, Jake and I have had the occasion to make the acquaintance of your friend, Miss Brown's father, Mr. Bob Brown. His daily constitutional coincides with our route to school. He drank his tea. Natalie's father runs some studio. Yes, ma'am. He asked me to convey his condolences. I was having a hard time fathoming that Mr. Bob Brown even knew I existed. However, I had been married to a movie star. Of course he knew who I was. And, of course, Natalie and I were relatively tight. Suddenly I thought of his other child, the little girl from the park with the melon head. I wondered if Anne, yes, that was her name, had ever grown into her enormous noggin. Wait, Bob Brown's second daughter would be in college by now. Where had the years gone? I thought of Andrew and Isabel's cohort, and Anne, present in the beginning, was virtually absent for at least the past decade. While my father was emotionally absent, it appeared Bob Brown was physically absent. How odd. As it happens, Bob Brown, as removed from the day-to-day -day activities of his children as he was, was an acute observer. He had been captivated by the daily ritual he had witnessed Monday through Friday, beginning that September. A man, perhaps a few years older than himself, probably his brother's age, of upright bearing in deep conversation with a six-year-old boy. Mr. Booker and Jake could be overheard discussing the Arabic origin of the word assassin, or the atmospheric physics of thunder. Sometimes they talked nonsense. More often than not, what they spoke about was consequential and considered. After a few weeks, he introduced himself and joined their conversations. Not long after that, Bob Brown invited Mr. Booker to join in on his monthly Thursday night poker game. I added Bob Brown's name to the lengthening list on my yellow legal pad. So you meet once a month? Yes, Mrs. Taylor. At Bob Brown's. Indeed, I feel most fortunate. The majority of players have known each other since their childhoods. I flashed on a table of 14-year-olds chewing on cigars and fanning out playing cards. In fact, the average age at the card table was low 60s. The notion made me smile. I could feel a little warmth in my cheeks. Mr. Booker poured more tea, adding a splash of cream to my cup and adding another teaspoon of sugar. Thank you, Mr. Booker. Don't mention it. 
he had produced a packet of Garibaldi biscuits from God only knows where and was placing a stack on a plate in front of me. My mom used to give me these. I love them. I used to call them squash fly cookies. Hmm. Mr. Booker raised an eyebrow. I believe the fruity filling consists of currants. They're a variation on an Eccles cake. Eccles cake? Uh, somewhat similar to your Fig Newton. I like the sound of that. Are there any women in this poker game? No, ma'am. Mr. Brown has another girl, Anne, a, a lot younger than Natalie. Have you met her? Briefly. She was here for Thanksgiving. How was she? All I could remember was a giggler with a desire to climb, people, trees, furniture. Mum? Tall, short, in school, working at Burger King? Ah, I see. Anne appears all of 98 pounds, a very slight girl, round, wired-rimmed glasses, attends university. We didn't speak. I saw her slip by carrying a book and a very large bowl of ice cream. Her father's very proud, a, a studious girl, very fond of Anne, had no contact with Anne's mother. Maybe he did exert a paternal interest. That was nice. My view of Bob Brown immediately improved, or maybe it was the introduction of some food into my system that made everything seem better. Thank you, Mr. Booker. I did. I felt much better. Also, I was on to something. Mr. Booker and I said our good nights. At the time, if you had asked me what Mr. Booker was thinking, I would have been stumped. Years later, though, Mr. Booker and I became much closer. He confided much more in me than ever before. It became a relationship of equals, of adults, whereas previously, hmm, regardless of me being the employer, it was much more of a relationship of mentor and pupil, at least from his point of view. As Mr. Booker walked down the corridor from the kitchen to his private quarters, a bedroom, bath, and an office that he lined with well-read books adjoining a small sitting room, he hesitated for a moment. Something, another shiver of recognition, that odd sensation at the back of his neck. Something troubling. The boy was fine. Our Mrs. Taylor is improving. It's that young man, Cooper Daniels. He recognized the type from his service with the intelligence community. Brave, yes, but ungovernable. Dashing but too easily seduced. Undisciplined in thought and deed. In the secret service, they are the first to die. Oh, that was so many years ago, so very many years. However, his powers of personal discernment hadn't diminished. His reflexes, for all intents and purposes, were shot but his judgment was still unerring. Cooper Daniels, trouble, catnip. Not necessarily a bad fellow, but certainly not good for Billy Taylor. Is Mrs. Taylor establishing a pattern? The alliance with Mr. Taylor can be chalked up to inexperience and youthful exuberance. Perhaps the rise in salary isn't nearly adequate enough. Mr. Booker pondered why life in the Secret Service was oddly similar to his domestic service. Attention to detail, sharp and silent watchfulness, constancy, a deep understanding of protocol, the instinct to defend. He remembered the odd vernacular of old Etonians, a mixture of nursery references and blazing obscenities. 
One didn't need to be a psychiatrist to figure out why men who had been sent away to boarding school at the age of seven referred to their secretaries as mothers. He continued to think. Everyone has a distinct Rosetta Stone. He thought about me. Ishmael or Ahab? He wondered if he could obtain my code key. In the Secret Service, personas that started as a ruse sometimes become mainstays of character. People are so adaptable, and Mrs. Taylor, in his mind, is barely an adult. Yes, there is still time. He considered me a reactive personality, not proactive. Perhaps that could change? Unlikely, but not impossible. Mr. Booker saw that I had married in an adolescent vapor of glamour and celebrity, and clearly I was infatuated by Cooper Daniel's bad boy aspect. However, the glamour of celebrity encouraged unbridled indulgence as evidenced by Dave Taylor's consorting with call girls and Cooper Daniel's bad boy aspect has landed him in bed with a low-level, new-age miscreant. Were these experiences enough of a come-down to launch me in a new direction? He determined the upside was that my parents had succeeded in instilling me with a decent work ethic and I was devoted to friends and family. And if I would exercise my intellect, I seemed, in his estimation, to have a lively mind. Yes, there's something there that could be molded. Who can say? Well, he could, absolutely, and with complete tight-lipped Anglo-authority. Authority and arrogance, however, are a young man's game. He wondered if it was still within his scope. Ugh, and the heartbreak when an operative fails. Really, this isn't espionage, it's someone's life, he was stewing about. He had envisioned these years as a respite from mental taxation. It took such enormous expenditures of energy, and women are so intrinsically different. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed the story, please tell a friend.